Dr. Hinman has spent nearly 20 years in full-time practice as a psychotherapist and educator. In addition, he has been actively pursuing his own recovery as an adult child for the past 14 years. Cognitive perceptual reconstruction, a therapeutic approach to the treatment of adult children of dysfunction, has been an outgrowth of these years of experience. Dr. Hinman has published several articles on adult children and a chapter with his wife, Sonia, Cognitive Perceptual Reconstruction in the Treatment of Alcoholism. With the help of a steering committee of recovering individuals, he has founded CARE self-help groups. He is currently in full-time practice as a psychologist with Psychological Associates in Modesto. Tonight's presentation, Understanding the Wounded Child Within, is Lecture 1 of the Journey Series. It is co-sponsored by Psychological Associates and Modesto Psychiatric Center. Dr. Hinman will discuss Part 1, Shame, an Autoimmune Disease, Part 2, Reflections in a Mirror, and Part 3, Survival Styles of Adult Children. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Hinman. This is really overwhelming. This is wonderful. This tonight is going to be talking about understanding the wounded child within. It's the first of a series of five. The second next week will be a developmental view of addictions. The next week, exploring new program, a blueprint for recovery. Next week after that, uh, the roadblocks to recovery, and finally, building recovering relationships. The process of understanding adult children, understanding addictions, understanding depression, anxiety, understanding the process of deteriorating relationships, the divorce rate, the suicide rate, just the level of dysfunction in our society today, I believe has a great deal to do with understanding the personality structure of adult children. There are many ways of looking at dysfunction, pathology, woundedness. One would be more of a biochemical model. In a biochemical model, a medical model, they look for some type of biochemical imbalance and to find a medication to correct that imbalance. The difference between a medical model and the kind of adaptive model that we use with cognitive perceptual reconstruction is that although we, we definitely agree that there is often after prolonged stress, after prolonged pain, and that's not a word I use lightly, but I think it's a very accurate term, the kind of pain that comes from being disconnected from yourself. I do believe there is an impact on one's physiology, that there are biochemical changes that come out of prolonged stress. So although often there may be a need for medication, particularly early 
in treatments such as in depression, sometimes in dealing with anxiety. I don't believe that medication alone is going to address the underlying woundedness in the individual person. Over the years, I have found that people's behavior makes sense. You see someone that comes in and they're suicidal. Life isn't worth living. That may be because of chronic depression. It may be because just the notion of, of going out of their house creates such overwhelming panic and anxiety that they go back indoors. It may be because of any number of different addictions, chemical addictions, codependency, the addiction on other people, sexual addictions, all the different food addictions. But what's in common is that in all of these situations, whatever the pathology, and I don't even like to look at it as pathology, but whatever way in which these symptoms are manifesting themselves, invariably what you find underneath is a disconnection between the self and the self, between the self and other people, and between the self and a higher power, whatever kind of spirituality a person may have. And I believe that if you don't address that underlying disconnectedness, you're not going to be dealing with the real issue. If you don't begin to respect the wounded parts of self, if you don't teach people to do that, at best you'll be treating a symptom. And so tonight and for the next four weeks after tonight, we're going to be talking about how to understand more about that woundedness, how it happens, how it manifests itself, and what to do about it. One of the things that's really difficult with adult children, whether adult children of alcoholism, adult children of some kind of major psychiatric problem, adult children of explosive personality parents, uh, latchkey kids that, that just were not able to get enough supervision, they had to be adult at too young an age. Whatever the source of that disconnectedness, once it takes place, it remains frozen in time. This picture, I'd like to give credit to my niece Kelly who did the cartoon. What happens is that as you go through life, as the pain gets too great, you disconnect. You block the pain. But at the same time that you're blocking the pain, a part of you gets disconnected with it. The scene in which the pain is surrounding the situation traps the person in the scene, like a bubble. And so, you can see different ages floating in that pool of pain while the adult individual is busy trying to keep everything intact, trying to keep the pain from breaking through. What happens with that is that there's an ongoing feeling of impending doom. What if the wall breaks? What if there's a crack in the bricks? 
So the adult tends to feel an impending kind of tension, an impending kind of doom. In addition to that, there is also the feeling that something is missing. And what is missing is that part of self that got disconnected along with blocking the pain. That's a very accurate perception. That is not pathology. That's accuracy. When a person feels empty inside, that's often because they are empty inside. It's an accurate perception. When the disconnection takes place, whether at age two or three, six, seven, nine, sometimes we continue disconnecting into adult life in the 20s, 30s. When it gets too painful to continue experiencing what's going on, there's a tendency to block that pain. Our society worships pleasure and abhors discomfort. Look at the advertisements for aspirin, Somnex if you can't sleep. Whatever you do, don't be uncomfortable. Don't feel pain. Our culture is bombarding us with that notion. Don't feel bad. If you're feeling bad, there's something wrong. I have news for you. Sometimes if you're feeling bad, that means there's something right, not something wrong. It's time to re-examine what pain means. Take a look at leprosy. One of, the, one of the symptoms in leprosy is that you lose the sense in your pain receptors. You put your hand on a burning uh, hot plate. The only way you know it is when you smell the flesh burning. You gouge yourself on the table with your leg. The only way you may know it is because you happen to, to see it. Pain is not bad. Pain is not good. Pain is simply a signal, like a traffic light that says, stop, pay attention. When we block that signal, we create an unfolding difficulty that gets nothing but worse over time. Now, let me go to my next picture here. One of the questions we need to look at is, how do we get a sense of self to know when we should disconnect? How do we know who we are? Think about that for a moment. How did you learn who you were as a person, as an individual? What let you know who you were? You got that from your family. So when you learn to hate yourself, when you learn to reject yourself, when you learn to begin to drown in that pool of pain that you saw a moment ago, that's what creates, in my mind, an autoimmune disease. 
To me, that's what adult children are suffering from, is an autoimmune disease, like rheumatic heart disease, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus erythematosus, uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and let's include in that adult children of dysfunction. In each of these disease processes, the healthy reaction turns against self, begins to attack self. And those little bubbles that you saw a moment ago, those little kids inside of many of you here tonight, including myself, we try to get rid of them. They're drowning in shame, and we as the adult try to get rid of them. We hate them. We try to destroy them. And that is destroying self. We end up destroying ourselves by trying to destroy the part of ourselves that we're ashamed of. And for that reason, I think you can accurately see the dynamics of an autoimmune disease in play with adult children. There are many things that lead to that kind of disconnectedness. Part of it is societal expectations, including familial expectations. Part of it has to do with luck of the draw, where you're born, birth order. A lot of it has to do with the reflection you, re you get back in the mirror of the people you're closest to. It's important to understand that as an adult child, often you become older than your parents at a very early age. I want you to really think about that for a moment. You become older than your parents by the time you're three, four, five, six years of age. Somehow your competency becomes a threat to their little boy, their little girl inside. So generation after generation after generation, it's passed on. If I can't feel good about Jim Henman, then how can I tolerate Jesse or Nathan Henman, my sons, eight and six this Saturday? How can I really tolerate them feeling good about themselves? I want it consciously. I want good things for my children, but if I hate me inside, it's going to be very difficult for me to accept them loving themselves. It's hard to give something you don't have. So it's time that we get beyond fault and get beyond blame. When we begin to look at the reflection, we need to take off the filter of blame. We need to take off the filter of judgmentalness and instead put on the filter of accuracy, observation, to begin to look and see accurately, not to judge, not to blame, but to begin the process of change. That's what I believe in, is the process of change. I believe that's why you're here, is because you would like to learn more about that process of change. If you start by blaming, 
and judging, that whole process of change becomes unsafe. Denial makes sense if when you see accurately, you beat the heck out of yourself. Think about that. If I look at me accurately, see my flaws, and take a 12-pound sledgehammer to my head, does it pay to see accurately? Does it make sense to see accurately if when I see, I even hate myself more? No, no. Denial makes sense with judging. Denial makes sense with the kind of blame that tries to find fault. That gets in the way of change. Often when we think of adult children, we think that the only people that are adult children are those who have atrocious backgrounds. The stories of the, of, of the little girl that's six or seven years old with two or three little brothers and sisters under the table because mom or dad is in an alcoholic rage and shooting off a gun. We think of sexual abuse. We think of, of physical abuse. We think of, of verbal abuse. We think of emotional abuse. Dramatic stories. As if we have to justify our disconnectedness. I can't tell you how many clients I've seen. I call them clients because there's nothing patient about working on this. It's hard work. There's nothing patient or passive about it. They're clients because they work their tails off. Okay? Often, when we begin to get into the insides of an individual, they will say things like, well, Jim, you don't understand. My family was fine. No problem. My, my, my folks were, 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 were fine. Uh, I, I had no problems with, there was no, there was no drinking. Well, not until, you know, I was in high school. Well, yeah, they, they, they would get in fights a lot and beat each other up, but I mean, doesn't everybody? They'd lock me out of the house all night if I was five minutes late, but isn't that normal? I would be, you know, going through the Spanish Inquisition, I'd come home from a date, but doesn't everyone get that kind of interrogation? No. Everyone doesn't. Everyone doesn't get beaten. Okay? Everyone doesn't get the kind of conditional demand that says, if you are not good enough, you will not be loved by me. Pretty heavy duty, huh? On one end of the continuum, and please, one of the problems I have with much of the self-help literature, much of the current thinking, is the tendency to approach this whole issue of adult children in a black or white type of perspective. Now, that's normal for children to think in terms of black and white. But as adults, particularly those who are supposedly helping those wounded adult children, we need to break out of that mold. We need to see that 
there's a whole continuum from, you know, life-threatening physical sexual abuse to very, very nurturing and accepting. You may find that one parent is abusive and one parent is nurturing. It doesn't fit nice and neatly into little boxes. It may be that at one time in your life there's a lot of nurturing. Another time something happens to the family. Grandma comes to live and dad disappears. You know, he starts working 14, 15 hours a day and is happy to do it. <laughs> and you wish you had a job, you know what I mean? But you're stuck. Grandma sitting, you know? You may find that in the midst of awful abuse, I'm talking sexual molestation, I'm talking being put in the hospital with physical abuse, that there may be a neighbor that is so nurturing that there becomes a seed of acceptance planted that first continuum is the one we tend to think about every human being needs not once needs unconditional acceptance there's nothing wrong with wanting and needing unconditional acceptance the problem is this is a news flash. I know you haven't known this before. It's an imperfect world. Didn't know that, did you? Right? You heard it tonight. It's an imperfect world. Your parents are imperfect. And you know why? Because they live in an imperfect world, too. And they had imperfect parents who had imperfect parents who had imperfect parents who had imperfect parents. Okay? So let's, let's not blame them, but let's understand that when you have that going on, you're not going to get unconditional acceptance unless the parent accepts themselves unconditionally. I can't give you unconditional acceptance if I don't give me unconditional acceptance. It just works that way, folks. I'm sorry. I don't make the rules, but it's true. That's just the way it is. So that one of the first things that you want to do, whether in therapy, 12-step kinds of programs, why do you think 12-step programs are so wonderful? Because you get unconditional acceptance. You go in and you get your 90-day chip or medallion, depending on where. And three days later you come in and say, I've got two days. And you know what they say? Great, you got two days, good, let's go for three. <laughs> no, no, you don't understand. I blew it. Great, you've got two days. Let's celebrate that. That's AA, that's Al-Anon, that's NA. See, these programs are so stupid, they don't realize they're supposed to judge you. <laughs> they don't deal with the program. They think that somehow the fact that you're at the meeting says that at this moment, you're choosing 
correctly. It doesn't mean that 20 minutes earlier or 20 minutes in the future, you may not go out and blow it. That's the reason these programs work. And I'm really a tightwad. And what I don't understand is the resistance to something that's so wonderful and so free. You know, I don't understand this. You know, you can pay a lot of money or you can get something for free. Which would you choose? You know? But what makes those programs work is that they begin to provide the nurturing in the mirror of interpersonal relating. They accept you where you are. It's a come-as-you-are party in the 12-step programs. That's one of the fundamental principles. We'll be talking more about that next week. If you think I'm pushing it, so? <laughs> I am. That's okay. Because they work. It doesn't mean that you have to choose. Remember I said earlier about the black and white thinking? If you choose a 12-step program, does that mean you can't choose therapy? No. If you choose therapy, does it mean you can't choose a 12-step program? No. And is a three-letter word. I'd like to hear it. And. and. One more time. And. Now this time, believe it. And. That's the first step into recovery. Take a moment and feel what it's like to take that step. When you embrace and, you begin to generate choice. Choice is what recovery is all about. The acceptance of imperfectly choosing is what recovery is all about. Recovery is a lifetime process, so why rush it? You know, you, get, you see people get their track shoes on and they're busy trying to get into recovery and they're working so hard, they're busting out in a sweat. It's a lifetime process. Why are you hurrying so much? The faster you hurry, the slower you go. The harder you push, the more disrespectful you are to your resistances, which are normal, the more slowly you progress in your recovery. We're going to be talking in week four about roadblocks to recovery. I love that talk. And it's like, let's plan how to make it hard. So we have a choice, you know? I always say to people I'm working with, whether from one of the addictions or depression or anxiety, and I see, like I say, a very common underlying theme with all of those is let's figure out how to be broken so we can choose whether to continue that or do something different. I like having choices. So the first step in the reflection has to do with the continuum of nurturing to abusiveness. In addition to that first continuum. The next is predictable to unpredictable. What I find often is that children who 
disconnect from themselves do so because they never know when it's safe. One day you get rejected if you smile. The next day you get rejected if you don't smile. It depends on the mood. Sometimes it has to do with intoxication of the parent. Sometimes it has to do with where they are in their bipolar dance through life. Sometimes it has to do with how their boss had treated them. You know, whether there was enough gas in the gas tank to, you know, to go where they wanted to go, or they have to stop and they're in a hurry and the stupid guy finding You come home and you go, hi, dad, shut up. Okay. The next day, you come home and you shut up. What's the matter with you? Don't you love me? <laughs> you know, you start to go nuts. You go, let's see now. If I do this, it's wrong. If I do this, it's wrong. You gotta escape. Somehow, you gotta get out of that impossible double bind. How do you do that? You stop being you. Easy. You just turn off. Then it doesn't hurt so much. The trouble is, when you turn off, it doesn't go away. It, self doesn't go away. It stays floating in the unconscious. The unconscious is atemporal, without time. What that means is something that happened last week or 30 years ago at an unconscious level is fairly indistinguishable. So I don't care, you know, I've, I've the oldest person I've worked with is, I think, was in their 90s. That person had memories that were from very early in life. And, it, and he was saying, well, you know, that happened a long time ago. What's the problem? Well, the problem is that is still happening in the present. When you freeze a scene, becomes eternally in the present. Eternally in the present. Because of that, what we do in, in CPR, or cognitive perceptual reconstruction, it's kind of interesting, we'd come up with CPR to deal with an autoimmune disease. It was a coincidence, but I like it. Because I think that we do need to breathe life back into those empty spots. We do need to resuscitate the heartbeat. Because when you disconnect parts of yourself, your soul begins to shrivel. Your soul, the very essence of who you are, begins to shrivel up. And there's nothing worse than that. I don't care if the symptoms have to do with depression, eating disorders, chemical dependency, codependency. It doesn't matter. These shrivel your sense of self. And they're too expensive. Just too doggone expensive. And that predictability, unpredictability, is a very useful tool in psychological warfare. Let's think about, if we had someone that we wanted to drive nuts, I mean, nuts, how would we do it? Well, one way would be to go into a room and have a, a penetrating sound 
a sharp blasting sound and you never know when it's going to go off and you start to relax a little bit start to catch your breath and you start to relax a little bit but this time it takes a little bit longer to relax and after a while it's almost as if you're not reacting but inside you're still reacting you never let go. And that's when the disconnections tend to take place. You never know when it's unpredictable. So again, one of the real values in the 12-step model, I sound like I'm really pushing that, oh well, is anywhere you go, you're going to find a table and a coffee pot and cigarettes. <laughs> Probably <laughs> cigarettes and acceptance and nurturing so that instead of going in and saying what's going to happen after a while you begin to say yeah I'm going to be accepted here so it begins to address the second issue of predictability hopefully in a therapeutic relationship also there would be predictability that your therapist would be consistent in relating to you so you can begin to count on like for example with me my clients can count on the fact that I'm gonna give them a very uncomfortable hour <laughs> you know they come in they sit down in the green chair and they know they're gonna work their tails off for an hour and be exhausted at the end of the time if I was not doing that they'd wonder what was wrong how come you let me off so easy today Jim I don't get that question very often. The third impact in terms of how you learn to see yourself, the reflection that you gain a sense of self, has to do with congruency and incongruency. Again, it's a continuum. So I say to you, hi, it's really good to see you. Really good to see you. Versus, hi, it's good to see you. You know? One of the reasons that children... <laughs> nothing personal. <laughs> One of the things with kids is they have great antennae. You know? And particularly when they're in an unpredictable or an incongruent type of environment, their antennae make NORAD look pale by comparison. You know, the early warning uh, radar network that we have guarding our precious country is nothing compared to kids before they die inside before they disconnect and so they realize that when mom or dad stiffens up when they give them a hug that they're not supposed to do it you see and so they learn that they should also be incongruent they learn to put a damper, a governor, on themselves because their environment is incongruent also. It's practical, it's adaptive to do so. It makes sense. So if my environment is phony, in quotes, I need to learn how to be phony. I need to learn to say, 
Yes and no. Right? And not comment on those discrepancies. You know what happens if you comment as a kid on your parents' incongruity? Just, just take a wild guess, you know? Gee, you know, Mom, I just, you know, you know, Mom, you're, you're saying this, but your tone of voice and the look on your face seems to contradict. Bam! <laughs> not a wise decision. Not a functional, adaptive, coping response. Not smart. So when mom or dad does X, the kid goes, okay. Mom and dad does Y, the kid says, okay. I'll just not be me. No problem. Got it covered. You see? We learn from the mirror that we grow up with. This is not blame because they learned from their mirror and they learned from their mirror. This is not blame. It's beginning to understand as a beginning to have choices to produce change. That's all this is about. Then we go to spontaneous and open versus rigid and closed. Claudia Black, one of the, the leading pioneers in the whole adult child issue, came out with a great saying, you know, don't talk, don't feel, just shut up. That's how you survive in an alcoholic environment. Shut up and don't feel and don't be. You see? It's very rigid, very closed. On the other hand, spontaneous and open. In a therapeutic environment, whether that therapeutic environment is a 12-step meeting or whether that's a therapist's office, there needs to be the permission to be spontaneous, to be able to be congruent. You know, oftentimes, the first time I'll see somebody, they'll walk in and they'll see the Kleenex box. <laughs> and there's a mixture of feelings. You know, on the one hand, they go, oh, nuts. <laughs> you ain't going to make me cry. <laughs> you know? <clears throat> on the other hand, is the relief. I'm not the only one that cries. And both feelings are very real. And when I'm tacky enough, and I always am, at pointing this out to them when they do it, and say, yeah, you know, you're probably going to have some feelings. And you have some feelings about having feelings, don't you? It's open. It's okay that we go where we go. In healthy environments, there's room for dancing. There's room for movement. So one day you're a little bit this way, another day you're a little bit this way. That's not dealing with the kind of unpredictability I was talking about earlier. It's the ability to have some fluidity. There is a qualitative difference between those two things. To, the openness to comment is really important. That's how you learn to reality test. If you can't do it, you got to make up your own mind. And what happens is, when you get an environment that tends to be on the right side, that's abusive, unpredictable, incongruent, rigid and closed, 
what happens is in those early internal decisions, when you're getting a sense of who you are as a person, your identity as an individual, that environment affects those decisions. Eric Erickson came up with a series of developmental stages in terms of the growing sense of self. The first, basic trust versus mistrust. As a, as a newborn baby, when I cry, does someone come? Does anybody care? Does anybody hear me? You know? And if the answer is yes, I can trust. When I have poo-poo coming out of my diapers, does anyone notice? Now maybe your kids didn't have that. <laughs> Mine did. You learn, depending on the mirror that you are looking into, you learn to trust or mistrust your environment. And as you get a little bit older, you begin to either experience the autonomy, the permission to be Jim Henman, not Pete Henman, not Gene Henman, not Betty Henman, not Bob Henman, but Jim Henman. An individual. That's autonomy, a sense of being an individual person. Or you begin floating in that shame, that sea of shame. You begin disconnecting, disowning, rejecting self. And you begin to have a real doubt about your okayness. And you begin to hate yourself. And that's the beginnings of that autoimmune process. Because when you start to hate, you want to get rid of. When you want to get rid of, you want to cut off. It's a surgical mentality to self. You want to cut off the arm because it's, it's not okay. The shame becomes a foundation for how you approach yourself and others the rest of your life. Those decisions are forgotten. The impact continues and continues and continues. A sense of initiative versus guilt. How many of you, let's just take a, take a poll here. How many of you at age four were perfectly competent at everything? How many? So you all ended up feeling guilty? Huh? How many of you had permission to be imperfect? And truly had the permission to be imperfect? That's neat. That is the most precious gift a person can receive. It's the permission to be imperfect. The trouble is, if I don't have that permission, I can't give it to my sons. If I don't have the permission, I can't give that to my wife. You can't give something you don't have. So again, generation after generation after generation, it compounds. And that's one of the reasons that in 1989, the preponderance of difficulty is as it is, because generations keep continuing the guilt when making a mistake. Do you want to make recovery real difficult? How many of you are here to make it more difficult? 
I just want to, just in case, you know. I'll tell you how to do it. Demand that you make no mistakes, okay? And I guarantee you, you will stay at the first step of recovery. And I don't mean the first step of the 12 steps, because you won't do that perfectly, I guarantee you. <laughs> that first step of realizing your life is unmanageable is something you're going to do and undo. Huh? Again and again and again. Because you think, well, yeah, I haven't had a drink for three months, so I must have not been an alcoholic. I'm going to go celebrate and have a drink. <laughs> you know? You know, I was a codependent in that last relationship, but, you know, I, I'm cured now. You know, Hormel Hams, I'm cured. <laughs> and so now, I'm going to go with this person, and I know he's not an alcoholic. Yeah, he does cocaine, but... <laughs> <laughs> picky, picky! Right? Or, no, he doesn't do any drugs at all. But he does seem to spend most of his money gambling. Or he works 18 hours a day, eight days a week. <laughs> Hopefully, leap year kind of makes that possible. <laughs> it's the new math gets me every time. Somehow or other, unless you face the fact that it's a lifetime process of changing, of dealing with recalibrating those internal decisions that these kids have made inside, you will go and repeat and repeat and repeat. And you'll go through life repeating until you die. And that's the only thing people tend to do just once <laughs> that we know of. But other than that, those internal decisions, if they are not dealt with over and over and over again, like peeling an onion, you will repeat and repeat and repeat your habit. You know why? Because the, the fundamental addiction is to the familiar. Once your self-concept, self-image is formed around being an addict, alcoholic, depressed person, anxious person. I grew up with an image of being shy. <laughs> you can see that's no longer true. But that was my self-image. I believed that. When I would go into a situation, I would have that rule in my mind and therefore I would act shy. These decisions end up being frozen and forgotten and they continue to have the impact the rest of your life. The only thing that can change that is a different mirror. And it can't just be with the adult. Go back to this just for a moment. It's good for him to make new decisions, but until he makes contact with these kids inside, reaches across that bridge, reaches in there, brings that kid out, and you know what that kid's gonna look like? 
oftentimes, when, when we finally get to that point in therapy where they begin to make... That concludes disc A. Please insert disc B.